are a W-2 capitalist. You are addressing the gap between your successful, fulfilling W-2 job and building wealth for your family through real estate investing. You are ready to earn, invest, repeat. Welcome to the W-2 Capitalist Podcast. Now, let's get to work. Here's your host, Jay Helm. Hey, what's up, everybody? My name is Jay Helms, and I'm the founder of this movement and podcast known as the W2 Capitalist. Today, I have a very special guest with us, Chris Grinzig. Did I get your name right, Chris? You did. Awesome. Um, Chris focuses on managing, sourcing, evaluating, and acquiring new assets for Toro Real Estate Partners multifamily portfolio. He also contributes substantially to capital raising, negotiating joint ventures, financing and dispositions, which I hope we get into a lot of that today. Uh, but Chris has been with Toro since 2016 and has contributed to over 2,600 units. And I'm sitting here thinking, wow, that's pretty amazing. Acquired worth over 155 million. So if I'm doing the math right, that's three years, mm -hmm. right? So that's uh, roughly 850, 900 units per year, which is incredible. But before joining Toro Real Estate Partners, you actually worked at a finance, uh, small boutique finance firm in Rockville Center, New York. Uh, along with that, you also were a bit of an athlete, right? You played Division <laughs> One soccer for four mm -hmm. years on scholarship, I might add. Which there you is, go. Which in my world, it means something because I was a walk-on for <laughs> the American football. Um, mm -hmm. And I played about a year and a half and I finally punched my ticket and said, okay, I'm out. So <laughs> I'm tired of getting beat up. Uh, I don't blame anyway, you. I, I never had uh, aspirations to go pro. What about you? Mm -hmm. I did just yeah. quickly realized wasn't going to get there. So it is yeah. what it is. But if, if you're like me, you wouldn't trade those days at college for anything. No. Right. I mean, it's some of the Absolutely not. best times in the world, but all right. So let's, let's start at the beginning because you just graduated from college. You went into the W2 world, uh, which you have a, a finance background, right? I saw where you were FINRA certified and, and that's about as the extent I'm going to say mm -hmm. that because I, real quickly, I'm going to get out of my expertise when it comes to financial regulation and whatnot. Mm -hmm. But you were, so tell me about the W2. Tell me what, what you hated about it and what mm. really pushed you to do real estate full-time. Because one of the things here at the W2 Capitalist is I focus on is a lot of, before I started this movement, a lot of folks that I was talking to and you know, focused on financial freedom wanted to punch their ticket out of the W2 world mm -hmm. where I feel like there's, there's a gap missing to say you can do both, right? Yeah. Um, You've decided to go full time, which your record proves that you know what you're doing. Twenty six hundred. We sure hope so. Yeah. <laughs> well, twenty six hundred units. You know, just getting past the acquisition is one thing, right? Mm -hmm. Now you got to make sure those those assets perform like you've promised your investors, and then eventually exit your position in those. But you've done something right. Right. Um, but before we get into that, tell us a little bit about the W2, man. What, what made you realize, okay, I like this real estate thing. I'm going to, mm -hmm. I'm going to, um, go at it full time. For sure. So what that bio doesn't actually mention is I actually spent the year as a coach prior to moving oh, wow. into finance. So just like a typical, you know, student athlete didn't really have any prospects lined up after school. Um, you know, didn't, I can agree with you there. <laughs> yeah. Didn't really do any internships or anything. Um, so lucked out. I had a buddy who hooked me up with a division two coaching job up in Massachusetts. I'm from New York, born and raised, went to school in Long Island. 
and went up there for a year, tried it out because you don't have a job. You got to try something and it's better than flipping burgers at McDonald's. So um, try that for a year. Really like the coaching part of it, but because you get paid so little, you have to have a second or a third job. Right. So I did yep. youth coaching on the side and that I did not like because it's, you know, glorified babysitting is basically what it was and just wasn't for me. I, you know, I saw five, 10 years down the road and I was like this, I just think I'm going to be unhappy. So I said, let me change now. So moved back to New York, um, still had a part-time job coaching in college and then also got a, another part-time full-time job as a cold caller for a stockbroker, uh, stock brokerage in Rockville center. That's the finance company. Um, just word it a little bit differently for the bio. Okay. Um, <laughs> and eventually got licensed after several months. Um, but while I was at the job, I quickly realized, you know, what it really meant to be a stockbroker and, you know, kind of what that world is. And, you know, it's not anything to the degree you see in Wolf of Wall Street or Boiler Room anymore, but Dang there's it. still, I hope that was the case. there's still <laughs> some, there's still some strong echoes. I mean, it's, yeah. it's a world where at least where I was, I can't speak for everybody. Um, sure. obviously, um, but where I was, it was very much, um, you know, what can my client make me, not what can I make for my client? And it was very much about, you know, how many commissions can I rack up from this person before they close an account? And that was just ass backwards wrong. And I was just like, okay, that's, that's the pits. It actually hit me one day, my aunt, you know, you know, bless her asked if she, if it would help, if she could roll her, I, it was some retirement account that she had in a, a stock brokerage account. She said, if I gave it to you, would that help you work? And I was like, no, don't give it to me. I'm, <laughs> don't do that. I mean, you know, no offense to her. She will, she's not also an accredited investor, so it wouldn't have worked anyway. But at that point, I was like, I don't even want to take your money because I'm afraid I'm going to lose it all. And my bosses aren't going to care that it's my aunt. So I said no. And then from there, I was like, okay, long time coming. This is the wake up call. You got to get out. Luckily, right at that same time, um, my mom and my cousin bought a flipping course. So that was my introduction into real estate. That was January, 2016. For that, I knew nothing. The example I always give is I thought asbestos was a type of mold. Um, so <laughs> I literally, yeah, all it's funny, you know, people who really know their stuff when they get a really good giggle out of that. Yeah. Um, <laughs> some people just give like a little chuckle or two and you know, like, okay, they, their hands were never in the weeds too much. Um, yeah. not that I really was, you know, I, I, I've never really been the hammer swinging person. Um, but you know, quickly learned that that wasn't the case. Um, so literally, you know, absolutely nothing. So I think, you know, a lot of people I talk to say they don't have, you know, the knowledge and how do they do it? And it's really not that hard because if I can do it, anybody can do it because I knew nothing. So, you know, the next few months was, you know, ramping up knowledge. Then it was, you know, nights and weekends still worked for the stock broker company and trying to flip houses on Long Island and, uh, flat out struggled, never bought a home, never put one under contract, never flip one, didn't even, you know, put one under contract and fuck it up. It just yeah. flat out never happened. Um, just never found a deal that even made sense on paper. Um, so we decided to, instead of trying to continue to bang our head against the wall, um, make a change and try to get into the uh, tax deed side down in Philly. And then eventually moved into the small multi and then a large multi. I won't go into it too much because you're asking more about the W2 stuff. No, it's all um, good, man. Yeah, but just quick background of how I got into it. But, you know, from the W-2 side, it was, you know, it was just the lack of flexibility and freedom was the largest thing for me. Um, and that's something that's changed dramatically now. And in the last year, it's something I've really placed a high value on because I've got a lot of 
friends that are, you know, same age, similar age that, you know, for one reason or another, don't like the job they're in and there's not much that they can do because they're tied to this, you know, revenue stream. They're only one. Yeah. And, you know, they might be looking for other jobs and there might not be, or might be reasons they don't want to do it. And it could just be the boss. It could be the job. It could be the location, could be the flexibility, could be the hours. It's, you know, a number of different things. And it's tough to change that when you're tied to it and you're not really working for yourself. Yeah. And that was it for me. That's uh, incredible. I think it says a lot about you as a person to not want to take your, uh, you said it was your aunt's money. Yeah. Your aunt's money. Uh, cause that could have made you look good in front of your boss, I'm sure. But, you know, I think you had enough wits about you to say, my boss doesn't care where this is coming from. Yeah. Um, uh, so I think that's, uh, kudos to you for, for doing that and kudos yeah. to your parents or whoever raised you because that's, that's a testament. <laughs> yeah, to I, that I guess too, they did right? an all right job, right? <laughs> they did an okay job. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, what was the flipping course that you, uh, that you took? Uh, it was fortune builders. Okay, cool. I'm familiar with them. Uh, mm -hmm. just, know of them. Uh, yeah. So, um, yeah, so almost, so most people have either a really good experience with them or really bad. Yeah. So, uh, so the problem we had with it and I, the reason we failed was twofold to flip a house was one, the program from my experience for eight months or whatever was designated around like quick calculations for renovation dollars, purchase, right. holding costs, et cetera. I think it probably worked great in other parts of the country, just not New York City, Long Island, you know, gotcha. LA, Miami, because they were trying to beat down our throats that, you know, a brand new kitchen costs $10,000 and everybody there that owned the home was like, you're never getting a brand new kitchen for $10,000. Yeah. <laughs> it's going to cost you 20, 25,000 and, you know, roofs and your holding costs. And so, yes, that didn't work. But I also know that if we were determined to make it work, we could have taken all those, um, what's the word I'm looking for? The strategies and the systems and everything. And we could have adapted it to fit to our local area. So, yeah. you know, it's not, I'm not going to sit here and just blame them because that would be silly and foolish. You know, it's on us as well. And yeah. instead of, we, we saw the problem and we said, all right, instead of trying to make this work, where we have, you know, we basically have no experience. We paid for an education difference between knowledge slash education and experience, two very different things. So we have no experience. We have the knowledge, but we have to adapt the knowledge, but we don't have the experience to adapt the knowledge. So what we decided was, Hey, let's find either someone in flipping or someone in another area that we can learn from and piggyback off of and either contribute, you know, our time, our capital or other resources to get our foot in the door. And the way we ended up doing that was we lent money as a hard money loan to a flipper in Pennsylvania. Through that, his cousin is John, who's one of the founders at Toro, where nice. I work now. And he was the one that was going to introduce us to the taxis in Philly, tried it. So we drove down, me and my cousin drove 50, 60, 70 properties and just hated it instantly. <laughs> um, it's just super rough, super long hours. He was yeah. about to have his first kid. So we we're just like, this isn't Again, just saw the writing on the wall. wasn't going to work. Came back, sat down with John, just saying, hey, thank you, but you know, here's why it's not going to work. We really, really appreciate it. And while we were talking, towards the end, he was raising money for an eight-unit property in Covington, Kentucky. And he was like, you know, I know you guys want to do your own thing. I get it. But would you consider investing? 
And we kind of said, ah, I don't know, you know, let us think about it. Um, and then as we thought about it more and more, we were like, hey, this is similar to, you know, giving a hard money loan. Let's invest passively and let's see if we can just arrange something where we pick his brain or it's coffee, it's, you know, Zoom yeah. calls or Skype calls, whatever it is. So we came back to him and said, hey, can we just, you know, jump on a phone call, coffee once a week, every other week? And he said, sure. So we invested passively in that, just started to get together more and more and more. Um, and then the four of us just had really good synergies. So we started that meetup group would really John did the first one and then we brought it together to be, that was at a bar and we brought it into a hotel to make it more educational. So we did that every month. Um, we then partnered on another 17 units in the same area as a joint venture. Uh, and then we joint ventured on an 82 unit property in Jacksonville, Florida. Um, but right around the time we started that 17 unit property, I was ready to quit my job full time. I hated it. Um, <laughs> it was long hours. It yeah. was just didn't sit well with me, you know, like fundamentally. Um, you know, I had to dress up every day, which I hated. Now I get to wear jeans and a t shirt, which is fantastic. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, it was just a lot of things I didn't like. Like, I was, I'd, I'll never say I was depressed because I think that would be an insult to people that actually struggle actually with that. Depressed. Yeah. Um, but I was definitely downbeaten. I put on a ton of weight. I stopped going to the gym. I stopped doing things. And I was just like, I looked at myself and I was like, you got to get the fuck out of here. So yeah, ready to quit. Luckily, just sitting down with John one day, he had actually worked for the same people I was working for just at a different company. So we were just talking about it and he got it. So it was like, you know, venting, but he was also like, I get it. I was like, you know, I really want to do this full thing full time, but the flipping didn't work out, blah, 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 blah. He was like, well, you know, me and my partner are actually looking to bring somebody in to help us out on the side. And he's like, is that something you'd want to do? So I was like, fuck yeah. And yeah. I was like, all right, let's <laughs> pump the brakes a little bit. You know, let's figure out how this is going to work. So I think it was like a week or two later, you know, I ended up quitting, uh, ended up moving over full time, helping them out. And, you know, I'm not going to sit here and pretend that, you know, I'm not an employee, but it's more of a entrepreneur-esque role where it's, you know, kind of my own hours, you know, yeah. my own responsibilities. You know, right now my role is basically the Florida region of our portfolio, acquisitions, asset management, you know, equity, debt, insurance, you know, broker relationships, investor relationships, you know, the whole nine basically, you know, picking up the pieces where they fall down. So, um, you know, it's definitely a hybrid of the two. Um, you know, I'm not going to sit here and say, Hey, you know, I bought 2,600 units or, you know, I raised money for 2,600 units. Um, I'd just be lying and I would found out really quick, but it's definitely a hybrid between the two. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. People will ask, ask me, how many units do you have in your portfolio? And I'm like, the quick answer is 323. Mm -hmm. The long answer is in one, in one syndication, I own 14%, two other syndications, I own less than 1%, mm -hmm. you know, and then we've, my wife and I have uh, five units ourselves. Gotcha. So, you know, it's one of those things where it's, it's a, you know, everybody's just wanting to look at the number and mm -hmm. uh, here's the quick answer, but uh, it's mm -hmm. good to hear you say that, that you're not taking credit for it. Although you've been a, a big part of it and they probably wouldn't keep you around if you weren't contributing your fair share of, of probably not. <laughs> um, yeah. Humbleness is on your side. So uh, I appreciate that. Not hey, sure. if you ever make it to Pensacola, man, you need to let me know. Yeah, definitely. Uh, I don't know. Yeah, we're mostly over on, uh, yeah, most of our stuff is in the Jacksonville region, but yeah. we've looked at a few assets over there. Just haven't been able to find anything that made sense yet. 
Me either. So that's why <laughs> we're, we're, we're investing out of state now too. So yeah. that, that's interesting. You said you're responsible for uh, Florida. Mm-hmm. Also, did I see you somewhere where you guys are in the Midwest too? Like yeah, Texas so, or Arizona or something like that? Yeah. So like 2015 to like 2017, 2018, we were, you know, Texas straight up and over and just take out kind of like the Chicago North cold region and the Northeast. Yeah. And we were like, we'll buy any deal that makes sense anywhere. And what happened was we had a deal here and a deal there and a deal here. And it was like to visit every property, you'd have to take 12 flights, 15 flights. Now we, you know, we rejiggered and we're focusing on North and central Florida. So really Jacksonville, Daytona, Orlando and Tampa and Pensacola a little bit. Um, And then we're also focused on the Midwest. So uh, Cincinnati, Columbus, Louisville, Indianapolis, Nashville. Um, so we're trying to just trying to build up scale. Um, and it makes just things a lot easier, not even the flights, just management. So we had like four or five different management companies. Now we're really only really down to two. We still have two other ones in play, but they only manage, uh, three outstanding assets of 17 currently. So they're, they're a small uh, portion. Um, but we really only use two now. So that makes it significantly easier. Um, greater economies of scale in the markets and the areas. Um, so, you know, that's where we focus now. Why those markets though, out of all the entire U S you guys Mm -hmm. seem to have your targets just on those. Why just those, those markets. So when we first started, we obviously targeted the east side because there's just as many good markets on the east side of the U.S. as there are on the west side. It's just way cheaper and way shorter for us in New York to get to the east side of the United States. So, you know, why pick a Phoenix when you can pick a Atlanta, right? It's, you know, not saying they're the same market, but they're probably in similar standing. So what's, you know, unless you really think Phoenix is the best market, which we didn't think it was head and shoulders above, you know, if there were investors that were like, I only want to invest in Phoenix, great. Go invest with them, not with us. So yeah, yeah, yeah. that was why we took that out. Um, we also still really like the Carolinas. We've just, you know, our first three deals we bought there were in um, Greenville and Charleston. And then we bought a fourth one in Wilmington. We've just struggled since those first three, the fourth one we bought last year, but that was kind of a, you know, a... Uh, what's the word isolated incident. Okay. We just haven't been able to find anything so that we felt comfortable buying. So we love the area. We would continue to buy Raleigh, Charlotte, Greenville, Charleston, Wilmington, those areas. We just can't find anything worth taking down. And we just felt like we were wasting time. So we found that first deal in Jacksonville, Florida. Then we found a second deal. And then late last year, we actually had four properties under contract for like 750 units, but we ended up dropping out of one after DD and we bought another 550. Um, and then we just put two more under contract. So we were finding some really good synergies there. And then Columbus was another area we really loved for years and years. It's actually John's first deal he ever bought was in Columbus as a 48 unit. And the problem that we've always had with Columbus is the tax reassessment. There is super aggressive. The school mm. districts, went crazy. And basically you'll get some sort of percentage on sale. You know, if it's a sale tax reassessment, if that's how they do it, usually you'll get, you know, 50% or 70% or 80% of sale Columbus, they do a hundred percent. So you were <laughs> jump, your spikes are huge, yeah. but we never found that cap rates 
reacted accordingly. They were still very low and your tax adjusted cap rates, we just couldn't make heads or tails of. So we just stopped looking for stabilized stuff there. Um, but where we've strayed to now is we've actually found now another three assets with super low cost basis in the mid thirties to low forties where the tax hit has not been nearly as significant. And because the appetite on sale for, you know, still low cap rates, you know, today, you know, in the five ish range, mid five, um, we feel we're insulated enough that we don't have to worry as much on sales if we were buying it, where because taxes would go crazy, we want, we would want to see much higher. There's still investor appetite for that higher stuff. So we found some pretty good success in the lower cost basis range. So that's the only reason we've revisited there. Um, but that's kind of why yeah. we've strayed towards those areas. The other big thing too, why we picked those areas is, you know, management is going to make or break your deals. So yes. we use third-party management on all our properties. We don't self-manage anything currently. Yeah. And you guys use the same property manager in all of them? So that's where I said right now, primarily it's two, just one two. in Jacksonville okay. and one in the Midwest. Okay. Um, really just Columbus for now, but we're trying to get into the other areas. Um, and as we started working with them, we just really, really liked them. They're regional players or local players. You know, they've got decent scale, but they're not these huge companies. So we deal directly with, you know, the owners and, you know, the higher ups of the company. We're not dealing with the, you know, the 10th person down on the ring and they're not really the decision maker. Right. Yeah. <laughs> right to the owner. Yet we had really good relationships. They see properties the same way as us. They're also both investors themselves. So they get it from our side as well as the management side. And we said, we just want to continue to work with these people because they make our properties good. So why wouldn't yeah. we continue to invest with them? So that also kind of helped shape where we were investing as well. Yeah. So what kind of cap rates are you guys running into or what kind of cap rates are y'all going after and mm -hmm. what kind of returns are your investors looking to, looking to gain? And one of the things I want to point out here too, I just saw it on your uh, website earlier today is that you have, what is a hundred plus return investors, which is is a statement to itself, right? Mm -hmm. These are people who invested with you on a deal, you know, exited that position or maybe you didn't exit that position, but you brought them another deal and they said, yep, let's do it again. That's, that's an incredible statement, by the way. Yeah. Just, we've probably uh, got 250 to 300 past investors and easily a hundred or more, you know, nice. have done it at least twice. You know, we've got probably, probably pretty close to a hundred of people we know will seriously consider investing in almost every deal we do pending, you know, their own personal finances and, you know, some people like this market or this type of deal. So, you know, it's not always, it's not like we have a hundred people knocking on our door every single time, you know, yeah. most of our deals are way less. Usually it's between 15 and 30 um, people. Yeah. Um, you want to, you want to have a span of control there, right? When it comes exactly. to exactly. Yeah. So you have that many investors at your, um, at your disposal. Mm -hmm. Probably not the best word to use, right? Sure, <laughs> but you know in what I mean. Database. Yeah, <laughs> there you go. That yeah. many, that many uh, investors in your database. How do you keep yourself from from not going after every deal, right? And, and staying true to what you know, you guys know, mm -hmm. right? You found a system that's worked for the past couple of years. Chances are you've had to alter it a, a, just a little bit, mm -hmm. uh, depending on what the market's providing or what investors. Of course. Want. But how do you how do you stay true to that system, or when do you know to tweak that system and not just to take advantage of um, 
of what the market's bringing you and say, Oh man, you know, and I, I kind of picture you as a conservative guy, just based mm-hmm. on what we've talked in the last 30 minutes. Yeah. How do you keep that within reins knowing you've got all these guys that are ready to do something? Right now it's funny. We, we joke about this all the time, right? Nobody that's out there talking, pitching investors is not saying they're not conservative. So it's, yeah, I, I know <laughs> I, I, we, everybody always says, yeah, you know, it's so funny. You always hear, well, why should I trust you? Well, we're super conservative on underwriting. Sure, Nobody's going to yeah. come out and say, oh, we're super aggressive on underwriting. Yeah. Talking about? But we, we, we do actually like to think ourselves and, you know, we tend to, you know, we get a lot of books from other people and we compare ourselves and, you know, I do think we're on, you know, I'm not going to say we're super low compared to the you know market that we see, but I do think we're, you know, in the lower half, if not the lower third. Um, you know, the biggest thing is we co-invest in all our deals. So that's the biggest thing. You got thing. money where on do, the table too. Yeah. Where do, where do we want to put our own money? And it's usually gotcha. a fight of how do we get more, you know, where do we find more money to put into deals because we like them that much? Um, yeah. You know, I don't think there's ever been a conversation of, hey, I've got, you know, $500,000 from Toro, let's only put in 250. It's okay. How do we do 500 and still have another 500 for the next one? Yeah. Um, gotcha. So it's, you know, that's definitely a large part of it. I think one of the things we also do differently and going back a little bit to where you're saying, you know, what do you look for in deals as well? Um, we're less concerned about going in cap rates as we are. What's the story behind the property and what's our exit? A lot of times we'll underwrite to whatever the pricing is they give us and we'll see what the returns are on what we think we can do. And then we'll alter our purchase based on where we can exit. So we'll almost back into it. So if that offer is a two cap or a 10 cap, you know, it makes a difference. Obviously I don't want to buy a stabilized two cap unless it's a crazy value add story, but you know, within reason, if it's a four and a half cap, but I know I can make, you know, my investors, let's just say, uh, you know, just for argument's sake, a 15 IRR and it's a really great location and we really like it. I'm okay with that. Yeah. But conversely, I'm not going to just offer a five and a half cap because that's the market and it's a deal I like, but on paper, it's going to return a 10 IRR. So we're, we're less focused going in. We like more of, you know, why, why is this being brought to me over somebody else? Why am I winning this deal over somebody else? Hmm. Um, what's the backstory behind I would, the See, I would get paranoid at that point in time. Dude, <laughs> if I'm get, like, do y'all do that? But that's no, but we do get paranoid. So like yeah. every marketed deal we're you know, first off, it's, this is another funny thing too, especially now as you know, the rise of social media and all this stuff, every deal that with a 506 C that gets blasted out there. Yeah. We weren't the highest offer, but we won on our reputation. Get the fuck out of here. You're telling me every single person that's ever won a deal won it on reputation? Yeah. It happens now and again. Yes, and everybody's course, conservative. Being on too. the buy side, I guarantee you, I guarantee you, but you have no way of knowing. So the broker's yeah. going to tell you that because they want you to feel good. They don't want to say, hey, guys, by the way, you paid 10% more than anybody else. Yeah. You go, ah, fuck. You know what? Never mind. Yeah. You know, they don't want you to retrade in 30 days or 45 days. So, you know, so you're going to get slung some bull every now and again, but you know, that's why, you know, we do get paranoid because it's okay. Market a deal. Why did we win this? And it's like, okay, better have a fucking good answer to that. And you know, the last market a deal that we bought was our 320 unit deal in Jacksonville, Florida. And the reason was broker that sold it typically sells class A stuff. So it gained a lot less traction 
It was in a slightly higher crime area than most people are comfortable with. But mm. our manager was actually born in that submarket. So she was like, guys, mm. I'm telling you, yeah. compared to three years ago, this isn't even the same. She also managed three other deals in the same area. So she knew that area like the back of her hand. Also, it was not only a value add play, we could cut costs on the expense side, even though taxes were going up 80%. So yeah. we had a lot of different things going for us. And we felt very comfortable, even with it being a marketed deal. We were like, okay, this is, we have a, we feel like we have a justifiable, significant competitive advantage to other people that are buying this property. Whereas if you just gave me a deal that was bought three years ago, they put in, you know, five a door into exteriors, they did 10% of interiors, and you're selling it to me at a tax adjusted five cap. I don't know where my competitive advantage is. You know, right. I've got to, I've got to find that. So, you know, a lot of times we look for, you know, the backstory of the property more than, you know, the, the nitty gritty financials. So, yeah. you know, the last two deals we bought in Columbus were deal, you know, one of them, the guy fucked up royally and was like 80% occupied. It was his last deal. He was getting fined like a thousand dollars a day by the city from all the violations. Wow. And we were able to come in and because we had bought a property around the corner that we were fixing up, we bought a 130 unit property vacant that we were fixing up and rehabbing and, and stuff. We had a super good relationship with the city. So we were able to come in, quell their concerns and say, Hey, we are going to fix this, but you got to stop. And they were like, okay. I mean, it wasn't that simple, but yeah, <laughs> they were like, okay. Um, and we were just buying it for a super low cost basis compared to recent trades. We bought that for, I think like 30 a door. We're going to be all in for like low forties, mid forties. There's properties trading anywhere from 60 to 83 a door, similar vintage around the corner. Yeah. So, um, and that's, you know, that deal's got hair on it. You know, I'm not going to sit here and say that it may take more. Or we may have to adjust capital guarantee. We're going to have to move money around. Um, but that's something we felt confident in because we were doing 130 unit vacant property around the corner. We were already eight months into it. Felt good with the area, already had a relationship with the manager, similar size properties to other ones we had taken down and just a really good backstory because yeah. we bought that deal. That same broker brought us another deal around the corner that was off market. First call, um, similar price point, a little bit higher. But stable, the guy bought it out of receivership, just got it occupied, hadn't done any renovations over the last five years, just got it occupied, did what he had to do. So it was just to come in, rebrand, interior value add, push rents play. Um, so it's just, you know, things like that is what we look for where it's, you can, I didn't even, you know, I didn't mention cap rates. I didn't mention rents. I didn't mention, you know, going in yields, you know, it was more of a, where's the value to be had and, you know, what is our play on top of that? Yeah. So I want to, I got a couple of questions on the 130 yeah, sure. unit vacant, vacant, um, property, but I want to back up real quick. Cause you mentioned 506 C earlier. Sure. So that, um, just correct me if I'm wrong. 506 B is your sophisticated investor, right? right? Which means you can prove that you are, I don't even think you have to prove, but you just have to attest that you know what you're investing in mm -hmm. and 506 C is the government regulation that says you are an accredited investor, which you meet certain monetary requirements and you have to prove that uh, before you can invest in one of these deals. Do I have yes. those straight? Okay. For um, partially. The, partially. The other biggest difference is five, for 506B, you can only have up to 35. They're non-accredited, sophisticated investors. 
sophisticated is very loose, but you also, I believe, again, double check all of this because yes. I fuck shit up all the time. You and uh, I, let's just go on and throw the disclaimer out there. You and I are not attorneys. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and you need, if you're listening to this and you want to get clarification on it, seek your attorney's advice. Yeah. Um, and I also love that on uh, ToroRep.com, you guys have your attorney as listed as a member of your team on your website, mm -hmm. which I think, and your CPA. Yeah. But I think that's, that's awesome. And those are huge, huge assets for people if they're, First deal, mm -hmm. first deal, you need those two people in your corner. from For sure. So, right. Um, but going back to that, so yeah. 506B up to 35, um, non-accredited, sophisticated. I believe to still qualify for sophisticated, you have to have three points of contact before you talk about any deal or any returns or anything like that. And then that filing doesn't allow you to publicly solicit the deal. So like, that's where I was saying the 506C deals you see on like LinkedIn and Facebook and Instagram, yeah. this investment opportunity, you could not do that with a 506B. You cannot yeah. go on. Like I couldn't come on your show and say, Hey guys, we got X, Y, and Z property. It's going to be a 17% return, um, you know, over five year hold and blah, blah, blah. Couldn't do that. 506C, however, only accredited investors, no non-accredited. So your mom or dad calls you up, says, Hey, I have five grand. I want to throw in pretty sure tough shit. Um, yeah. But you could go, you know, you can advertise, you can publicly solicit, you can go up to random strangers in the park and tell them you have an investment opportunity. I don't know how well that's going to go over, but you <laughs> yeah. can, you know, you can do all that and stuff. So never know, look, right? I, yeah, it's still, you know, it's still gray because it's, you know, illiquid. It's an alternative asset. There's still stuff you have to be careful. It's not like, you know, raising money. You're not a licensed broker. You still, there's still stuff you have to be careful of. You know, it's yeah. not like a carte blanche to just go raise money and do whatever the hell you want, but it is public. It is allowed to publicly solicit versus the 506B, which you can at all. Yeah. Best thing to do. If you have questions about that, consult your attorney. Don't set you straight. Um, and then, you know, if you mess up for whatever reason, they'll have your back because they advise yeah. you to do what was appropriate. So 130 unit vacant, completely mm -hmm. vacant. Um, you got, you said you took, you guys took that down eight months ago. How do you, I'm assuming it was a value add, right? So you got to come in, you got to yeah, basically, heavy. yeah. How do you bite something like that off? Right. I mean, do you, do you approach it in yeah. phases? I mean, what's the, what's the scoop? Like how, and yeah, where are so, y'all at now since it's been eight months? Yeah. So it's actually been a little over a year. It was eight okay. months prior to when we got the gotcha. other deal. Okay. Um, so that deal was brought to us. So another backstory, um, it was a senior living facility by this woman and then it got condemned by the city. And oh, wow. instead of just trying to fix shit, she decided to light the clubhouse on fire. And then basically I think <laughs> it, it ended up not getting too badly damaged. It was just a lot of like fire damage inside. So like the yeah. structure was fine. It was just like, I think the roof needed to be replaced. I think some you know, framing on the inside need to be replaced, stuff like that. And, you know, it was a gut job anyway. So yeah, um, it was fine. Um, I forget who took it back, if it was the city or the lender, but okay. it was about to go to short sale and a flipper we knew had it under contract for a while and it was just too big for them to take down. Um, you know, they single family flipper trying to do, uh, you know, 130 units just yeah. couldn't put it together. <laughs> so they, you know, they, I think they assigned it to us for like a small fee and, we took that down and our manager there has a really good maintenance team in place okay. with a lot of construction knowledge. So 
it wasn't something that really required a GC because it wasn't new structure stuff. All the framing, all the units, you know, all the units framed out. A lot of the stuff was in place. We actually took a lot of it out because it was just old and shitty and it had been sitting there. You know, so like we replaced almost all the drywall. We did all new kitchens, all new bathrooms. Didn't necessarily have to. Like some of the, as we could, we kept tubs and toilets and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, but did like all new, you know, vanities and stuff and new ACs and doors and windows and that stuff. Um, just because we bought it for dirt cheap. I think we bought it for like a million. I think we're going to end up putting like. Yeah. 130 units for a million dollars. Yeah. I mean, it was a hundred percent vacant. I mean, it's, you know, not a cash flow deal. So. And um, how do you, you you, how do you position that with investors? Like what's. uh, That it's super risky with a ton of value on the back end. That it's, you know, essentially a massive flip is what it is. Um, You know, it was also. Um, originally when we bought it, it's qualified as an opportunity zone deal. So when we first started looking at it, we thought, Hey, this is a deal we're going to go 10 years on. So even if it's a little bit more expensive or it takes a little bit longer in 10 years, all will be forgiven. Right. Cause it's got old 10 years. Plus you get the tax bonuses and all that fun stuff. Um, in the end, we just had so much appetite from investors for a quicker flip and higher risk. Um, we just said, you know, and there wasn't as much people, you know, when opportunity zones came out, everyone was like, this is the, you know, God's gift to real estate investing. And then it's slowly, (laughs) you know, people kind of realize, okay, it's okay. It's still nice, but it's not what everyone thought at first. So we just kind of said, you know, at the end of the day, more appetite for a quicker flip, even though it's a high risk, you know, high reward deal, let's go that route instead of going the opportunity zone route. So it was just a very honest, blunt, upfront conversation with people. Um, and just, Hey, this is what we're going to do. You know, here's our experience. You need, you can either trust us or not trust us basically. And yeah, you know, I guess people, you know, enough people trusted us to kind of, <laughs> you know, let us do it. And there's been a ton of hiccups. You know, we told people that we said, you know, it's going to take a while. It's not going to be quick. Um, you know, we have a bunch of, rent ready units and we're waiting for something from the city. I forget offhand. That's John's region more. So I get like certificate the, of occupancy, maybe it was CEO. something, something before that. And that was two or three weeks ago. I last got, you know, the updates as you know, we kind of sit down and go through all the deals and stuff like that. So I don't know offhand exactly what it is. Um, but it was just, you know, one thing after another where you have to figure it out and make do um, and one of the things we actually changed was it was actually 121 units when we bought it with a massive clubhouse we were able to actually go to the city and add another nine units. So, wow. and shrink the clubhouse cause it's, um, you know, very small one bedroom units doesn't need a big clubhouse. We were able to cut it down yeah. add units. Um, it's no longer a senior living facility, right? No, so it'll it, just be free market. Um, yeah. and it's, I mean, it's night and day. It's beautiful. Um, you know, we've posted a bunch of stuff on, you know, Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, stuff like that. And it's, it's going to be an unbelievable property and great value for that area. Um, but it's just, you know, the type of project that just, you know, going into it, you have to know that it's, you know, it may take extra money. There may be a capital call. There's going to be bumps in the road. What I expect to happen is not going to happen, you know, flat out. <laughs> yeah. um, but we think that there's enough, you know, wiggle room value experience to, you know, tackle any problems that occur. Um, yeah. And it, so far we've been able to, you know, do what we need to do um, to 
get close to getting this thing you know, leased up. And, and your investors, um, they probably went into this thinking, okay, or at least the expectation was set with them. Your money's in the back end, right? Yeah. We'll start oh, cash flowing when it's, when it's yeah. certain percentage occupied or whatnot. Yeah. That's very cool. So, um, how much of your, you know, as, as a division one athlete, there's routines, there's training that you have to go through. Mm -hmm. How much of that learning those systems has now applied to what you do? Right. Mm -hmm. So I think of getting up early in the morning, going and doing mat drills and knowing where the nearest garbage can is and all this other <laughs> stuff, yeah. you know, you know, the, you kind of get in this routine and you walk in, like I can still hear the seventies pure funk, uh, that we listen to every day that we worked <laughs> out. And you know, it's just one of those things where you get into a routine and now I'm, I'm on imagine dragons. It's no longer seventies mm -hmm. pure funk, but when I get in here and I start looking at deals or doing real estate stuff, Mm -hmm. I've got Imagine Dragons in my ear because that just kind of gets me in a zone. Do you do that now yourself? Do you find that correlation um, from what you did as an athlete to, to now investing or no? I, I struggle to answer that because I don't know anything else. Yeah. Right. You know, <laughs> yeah. it's, you know, it's, it's not like I, you know, my whole life I grew up and then became an athlete. Right. Know, the day I went to college. Yeah. So it's, you know, even you when, <laughs> no, yeah, yeah, it wasn't, uh, wasn't that good. Um, no, I mean, you know, for years and years played sports and had routines and things like that. So how much does it translate over? It's, you know, tough for me to say. Yeah. I think one of the things that I know for sure changed was, you know, my junior year going into senior year, I was struggling to get playing time and starts that I thought I should be getting by that time and right or wrong, probably more wrong. Um, decided that <laughs> summer I was like, Hey, like this is your last shot. Like you're most likely, if not, you know, definitely not going pro or really playing seriously after like you, if you look back in five, 10 years, if you don't give this summer, your all, you're just gonna, you're gonna look back and regret it. So I was like, okay, fuck it. Like we're doing this. We rented a house for that year. So it started that summer. So me and three other buddies that were living in that house, you know, barely drank that whole summer, ate super healthy, would cook every day and would just train two or three times a day for the whole yeah. summer. So three months, two and a half months, whatever it was, two months, because we came in early for preseason and I dropped like 10 pounds. I was already lean, but like dropped 10 pounds. We had to run a three mile, knock like 30 seconds off my three mile, you know, came in one of the top for the, you know, the beat test. And ended up, you know, improving minutes and start time. And I think that was the first time I was like, okay, like made a conscious effort to put in serious work, like serious work and dedication over a extended period of time, you know, two, three months. Isn't that long in the grand scheme of things, but for up until that point, it was the hardest I'd worked for the longest I'd worked and saw results from it, you know, wasn't anything life changing or altering, but I was like, huh, like that's that's how that works. And I think yeah. that's the biggest takeaway I've had from there. Cause it's, you know, it was little by little, it was getting better, getting better, getting better. And then it was like, when I came in, everyone was like, Holy fuck. Like the biggest thing was the weight. Cause it was like, <laughs> yeah. fuck bro. Like, what did you do? And I, was like, I don't know. And it, that was like the biggest change. And then it was just other things like just, you know, comfort and playing and stacking up against other people and yeah. you know, all that stuff. And it was just like, it was very visceral. Like it was just there. And that was proof of concept where, you know, in the past it was kind of just take things as they come. And if you're good enough, you're good enough. If you're not, you're not. Um, and that to me 
has been the biggest translation over into, you know, kind of my professional career, not for sports, you know, right. whatever, um, you know, of just, you know, setting goals, creating plans and putting in the work to actually yeah. get them, you know, has, I think definitely changed everything that I've accomplished up until this point. Yeah. Lace, no problem with lacing them up and getting dirty. Right. So yeah, for sure. I did the same thing, uh, going from my junior to senior year in high school. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then also my junior year in college. Uh, but in high school, my, uh, head coach came to me and, and he said, Hey, there's rumors that we're going to be drug testing soon. <laughs> You're going to be able to pass it. I was like, <laughs> coach, you've seen me coming in at 7 a.m. Yeah. every morning. I, I said, I said, yeah, we're fine. Unless, unless they have something against creatine, which I think is a supplement I was taking at the time. <laughs> we're good. Uh, but anyway, I hadn't seen a gym in a long time. So, mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, I, I, you know, you get a little bit older, um, a little bit older than you start having kids and, uh, you know, that thing kind of goes to the wayside. But anyway, sure. which I'm going to challenge you. You said mm-hmm. something earlier about, um, being a youth coach in soccer mm-hmm. is more like babysitting. I think, yeah. I, A, you are correct. Uh, I just helped coach. I wasn't the, I actually wasn't a coach. I was just a filling guy when, mm-hmm. when the rich, um, head coach couldn't be there. But uh, I helped coach my son's five year old, four and five year old team or five and six year old team this year. And, mm-hmm. and you're right. It's, it's, uh, I mean, you're that age, cats. definitely. Yeah. So, uh, I think, uh, when you, when you have your kid, your own kids, you're going to be looking at it a little different. Oh, um, for sure. It's all, yeah. I mean, <laughs> everything's different when it's, you know, your own kid, I'm sure. Um, yeah. yeah. and look, I, I like kids. So there was days I loved it. Like it was yeah. fun because you love hanging out with kids, but it's the days where they don't fucking listen and yeah. you just want to coach because <laughs> you, you know, you have to try to incorporate some coaching. You can't just sit there and play, you know, you do play games, but you try to make the games educational as well. Yeah. Yeah. And then some days just like, you just, you just want to stop and yeah. cry. <laughs> and it was just like, that's not, I can't do this for 10 years. I was like, I've done one year and it was enough. So yeah. that's all it is. And I was, and I was at, I was coaching like 10 year olds. So it was yeah. even, you know, a little bit better, but even still, I mean, 10 year olds are 10 year olds. They're going to, you know, goof off and not listen and stuff like that. So especially um, when they're not your own. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Um, I was listening to you on the, uh, Jake and Gino show earlier Mm -hmm. today, and you made a comment. I've never thought about this before. Um, it's just another Testament to you having your head on your shoulders, you know, in the right spot, but you made a comment to the effect. I'm not going to try to quote you, but a seller doesn't want to go through the selling process multiple times either. For sure. I have never thought about that, but that is so freaking true. Mm -hmm. Right. I mean, nobody, um, you don't want to get through, at least I don't. I mean, when I've sold single families and, and small multifamilies, I get under contract. I go under a contract with the expectation that we're going to close mm-hmm. very soon. Um, and I've never thought about that from the other side of the, the table yeah. when offering that, that the, that the seller is wanting to, um, make this as one and only shot. So I think that was, that's a quote of the day for me that really hit home with me. So that's awesome. Yeah, I think it's it's definitely a large, you know, it becomes a bigger and bigger factor as you move up and up. Um, you know, when you're in the, you know, the you know, the sub-million dollar space or, you know, the 20, 50 unit, I think it's less important because it's easier to get through. Um, but there's deals we've looked to buy and they're like, "Hey guys, it's 
you know, it's a 2% earnest deposit up front and then an additional 2% hard after due diligence. So you're 4%. So we were looking at a $20 million deal. We're like, fuck, you know, like 4%. We can't swing that. Like, yeah, we love this deal, but it's like, it's not even there because it was institutional seller. It was going to be institutional buyers with discretionary funds. And we we're just like, you know, it, you know, it doesn't help. And that's why, you know, I always ask the question. I always get the same answer, but I still ask it because we never know. Um, whenever we're buying a deal, I said, hey, what's more important to them, closing or, or price? And broker always go, oh, well, you know, it's a blend of the two. But some, excuse me, sometimes you do get a little bit of a better feel because some people will take the chance on a newer group because yeah. they're offering. And that's where I said, you know, these, you know, 506 C's and they're not all getting the, you know, the third highest <laughs> offer with their reputation. But yeah. sometimes it does happen because a group, you know, for us, for example, in Jacksonville, Florida, we hunt the, the, the deal we're buying now, we're buying two, the one we're going to close on probably earlier next year. I know for 100% fact that we are probably 5% below where they had it under contract at prior to mm. us, at least, if not higher. I know for a fact, because I know the group, they it was three properties. They closed on the other two. They walked on this one because it was a loan assumption. And it was, for whatever reason, I guess, maybe they thought it was a higher supplemental or they thought they could do free and clear. Don't know the full story, but I know somebody that knows where they had it under contract. So I know we're closer. But right. I also know that we got it. They were trying to get a higher price, but we had, because of the loan assumption, we had the one of the executives from the loan holder call them say these guys are a good group we had the broker go to bat for us because he sold us that 320 unit deal we bought we had five other deals closed we were under contract for a sixth and definitely 100 percent not you know tooting our own horn had something to do with reputation that we were going to close they had already gone through the sale process once it had been four or five months after that process that they went under contract a couple months after that when it closed and they were way more concerned about closing because it was the last deal they owned in Jacksonville. Mm, so sometimes right. that does happen. And that was a deal where it was, okay, it was 100%, you know, not 100%, 80%, 70% on closing instead of more like 50-50. Yeah. The other deal we currently have in contract in Florida, he said, if you don't hit $6 million, I'm not selling. Mm. But tremendous, tremendous value, fair price, we were able to get there. So Sometimes it really just depends on who that seller is and what they're looking for. But, you know, if you're looking to sell, especially if you've got investors, you hit a price and you're under contract for 15, 20, 25 days. And that 30 days usually due diligence, right? And you're coming up to that go hard date on their earnest deposit. Because typically, you know, especially unless, like I said, unless you're institutional, probably not doing hard money day one. Right. So, there's still a chance they can back out. But as you get closer and closer, you start thinking, okay, this is going to sell. This is going to sell. And then you start counting dollars and then you start, you know, you tell this investor what you're thinking and this investor, what you're thinking. And then all of a sudden they back out of they ask for a retrade that now changes. So you're like, fuck, do we go through this again? Do we, you know, do we go with what they're asking for a retrade? A lot of it's going to depend on other offers you got, other interest, what you think it's worth, um, how that whole process went. Um, also on the new terms they're offering to change the contract. But I can tell you right now, if it takes you an additional six months as the sponsor, you're going to earn less money right. on an annualized return and your investors are going to earn less because it's taken an additional six months 
for that same sale price. And with sponsors, the way most people have it set up is some sort of split over different hurdles. You have the same exact sale dollars, but it takes you longer. Your money's going down. Your investors are making the same, which is great, at least on the you know dollar for dollar, no, but not in the, you know not in the same time. So, you know, from that selfish standpoint, which a hundred percent is influenced on sale. If anybody tells you otherwise, they're lying, <laughs> right? Because every you know that's you know it's your job, it's your income. You want to know you know you want to make as much as you possibly can. If you can hit a greater return quicker, you're going to make more money. It's not like you're screwing anybody over the way it's set up. So. You know, if you can do that, great. So if you know you've got somebody that is wishy-washy and they're, you know, only a little bit higher, you're probably going to take the group that you're way more confident in closing because you're not going to have to go through, you know, all the unit walks again. You're not going to have a second lender, not a second appraiser, not second insurance. You're not going to have to send documents a second time. You're not going to have to answer questions a second time. And the less experienced the group, the more fucking questions you're going to get. And the more uh, that doesn't make sense to me questions and the more handholding you're going to have to do. So there's a lot to be said for, you know, track record experience, surety of closing, you know, especially as you get higher and higher up in, you know, dollars and units. Yeah. Chris, I know we're, we're bumping up on time, man, but um, as we were talking earlier before I hit the record button, I'm jealous of your mic set up. And the reason (laughs) you have that mic set up is you just launched a podcast Let's talk about that a little bit and then tell people what's the best way to get in touch with you. Yeah, for sure. So our podcast is called the real estate investing experience. Uh, John and I both host it. John's, like I said, one of the owners at Toro Um, and pretty similar setup to you. It was, you know, we had a lot of podcasts that we were listening to and, you know, no disrespect to these, but you know, it was, you know, what's your first deal? What's the numbers? And, you know, how did you make a 40 IRR? And we were like, we're just, tired of that. <laughs> yeah. So it was, you know, we would have awesome conversations with people and we we're like, why, God, we should fucking record these. And they're like, all right, let's just do a just podcast do around it. So, you know, we try to get, you know, with John and I, three or four people, you know, just having a chat and, you know, different people from all different walks of real estate investing and just having, you know, very, very similar to how you're doing, you know, 40, 50, 60, 70 minutes of just yeah authentic, honest conversation. Cause that's what we want to have. We don't want to yeah. sit there and talk about, you know, nitty gritty numbers if, and people like that. And that's just, you know, we're not the right show for them. So, and that's exactly, fine, but I know there's a lot of people that don't like it. So, um, but yeah, that's, you know, that's what we do. Um, you know, we launched it probably a month and a half ago. We got probably 12 or 13 episodes out, something like that. Nice. Um, nice. we do two a week and yeah, it's been going good. Um, I'll, but uh, if, definitely make a link in the show notes for sure. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And I'm like, you know, I don't do very good with scripted questions or anything like that. Yeah. Um, a lot of people will ask and I'm like, I, man, we're just going to chat, you know, yeah, the very sure. first podcast I was on, uh, they sent us this list of questions. They did a pre-recording, and I'm like, I got so freaking nervous. Like, I just want to, let's just chat. Let's yeah. just have a chat, but it wasn't their format and I totally get it and uh i bombed it but whatever (laughs) (laughs) it's all good but i'm like you man i'm having these conversations anyway i'm like why not so exactly uh hey man i have enjoyed this tremendously uh i'm actually on y'all's website right now at tororep.com i'm actually Mm -hmm. filling out the investor questionnaire because i imagine that's where um when deals come in you guys are going to blast them out to that 
Yep. Right. Um, so, cause I'm interested in, in what you guys are doing. So, um, definitely don't want this to be the last time you and I talk, whether it be on or off air, but, uh, if anybody wants to get in touch with you, what's the best way to do that? Yeah. Best two ways is email Chris at Toro rep.com. So T O R O R E P.com, uh, or, you know, pretty active on social media as well. So, you know, Instagram, you know, at Chris.Grenzig or, you know, Facebook, LinkedIn, just search Chris Grenzig. You can find me. Sounds good. Thanks, Chris. I appreciate you, brother. I'll talk to you soon. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you.